You're listening to audio from Red Rocks Baptist Church. For more information about our church, visit our website at redrocksbaptist.org or follow us on Instagram at Red Rocks Baptist. And if you have your Bibles here, which I hope you do, I would invite you to turn to 1 John, the book of 1 John. And as you're turning there, we're going to dismiss the children to Children's Church where they will hear a far better sermon than what you will hear. So if you want to go, please do <laughs> please do that right now. You won't hurt my feelings. Uh, we just sang, Oh, how the world to evil allures me. Who among us would deny the truths of these words, how often they have proven true in our lives even this week? Loving the world and all it offers makes living for God a struggle. And we find ourselves feeling defeated often in our lives when we seem to to not be able to measure up. And we, we find ourselves in this dilemma, this quandary, this, this struggle. We're tempted to sin. We need a great Savior, one who can help my burdens to bear. I must tell Jesus, He all my cares and sorrows will share. So we must not live in defeat. In fact, I find comfort in the words of the psalmist, the steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord and he delights in his way. Though he fall, he shall not be utterly cast down for the Lord upholds him with his hand. How often I've claimed those verses at times when I've fallen into the trap of Satan to love the world more than loving God. Let's look at our text. We are going to read from 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 to 17, familiar verses, no doubt, to all of us. John writes, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away in the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would quiet our hearts as we hear from your word today. And that you would speak through what is brought forth to convict our hearts. To draw us closer to our Savior. And I pray that because of what we hear today that we will, we will love you more. We will want to serve you more. In Jesus' name, amen. In 1996, the late Robert Bork 
wrote a book entitled Slouching Toward Gomorrah, Modern Liberalism and American Decline. And in chapter 14 of his book, which he called The Trouble in Religion, Judge Bork gave several reasons he believed that our society had become so secularized. But underlying all of these reasons, he wrote, I would put the advance of egalitarianism and individualism together with the progress of technology that made lives easier. He continues, those of us used to soft therapeutic religions of the present day forget how rigorous religion used to be, Protestant as well as Catholic. As life became easier and diversions more plentiful, men are less willing to accept the authority of their clergy and less willing to worship a demanding God, a God who dictates how one should live, and puts a great many bodily and psychological pleasures off limits. The extent to which you and I chafe against holy living, the extent to which we indulge our flesh and we fail to do what Christ demanded of us, that we take up our cross daily and follow him, And that we put the world behind us and we keep the cross before us. No turning back. To that extent that we do this, we find it directly proportional to how we are loving the world too much and all that is in the world. The Bible does teach much about love, does it not? And we're convicted because we fall short in the very first commandment and the most important commandment to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. Why are we to love him? Well, if we would look just a few pages from our text, we would see in 1 John four nineteen, we love him because he first loved us. And he demonstrated his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The second great commandment is that we should love our neighbor as ourselves. And we do love ourselves. Paul writes in Ephesians 5 that no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it. We're commanded to love one another. Jesus said, this is how you will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. But Jesus drilled down even further when he preached in a sermon on the mount. You have heard that it is said, love your neighbor and hate your enemies. Now, some of us have enemies where we would say, does the Bible really say that? But Jesus is saying, but I say to you, Do what to your enemies? Love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. 
Paul tells us that when we do this, we are fulfilling the law. Romans 13.10. And in 1 Corinthians 13.8, we read, Love never fails. But after all the Bible says about love, our text says do not love. This is a direct command that tells us that there is a love that is sinful. A love that should not be a part of the practice of a believer in Jesus Christ. Christian, do not love the world. We are not to love the world because, first of all, of what the world is. Now, we probably know that the Bible uses the word world in a few different ways. Acts 17.24, we read from Paul's message to the men of Athens, God who made the world and everything in it. So that's how it's used often in Scripture. It's talking about the earth, the planet, what God created. In John 3.16, we read, for God so loved the world. Now, God loved the planet he created. He saw that it was good, but that's not what it's talking to about in John 3.16. It's talking about the people in the world, all of mankind. God so loved the world. And both of these words are used together in John 1.10 when we read that Jesus was in the world and the world was made through him and the world did not know him. The third way scripture uses world is here in our text. Perhaps you recall growing up on Sunday afternoon, as I did, we didn't have a television in our home, so it was always a treat when we were able to go over to Grandma's house on Sunday afternoon, and the announcer would come on and say, the thrill of victory and the agony of defeat. That was announcing ABC's wide world of sports. The use of the word there was certainly not talking about our planet or all the people who live in the world. It was talking about an organized set of ideas and purposes that governed the world of sport. Now it's gone quite a bit beyond that where now eating a lot of hot dogs on July 4th is a sport. I don't know what they're talking about. We refer in the same way to the world of finance or the world of politics. It's this invisible behind-the-scenes system that makes what we see work, that keeps it going, so to speak. And so the world that John refers to in our text today and what we are not to love, what we're supposed to treat as an enemy is this invisible system that opposes God and is in rebellion against God. And who is the head of this system? The Bible tells us that Satan is. Paul refers to him as the God of this world who has blinded the eyes of those who would believe 
lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ should shine unto them. And his control over the world system is total and complete. Again, in 1 John, we read in 1 John 5, verse 19, the whole world is under the sway of the wicked one. Bible teacher Warren Wiersbe writes, a Christian is a member of the human world. He lives in the physical world, but he does not, or at least he should not, belong to the spiritual world that is Satan's system for opposing God. Jesus said, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. When we go to a zoo, we expect to see an effort has been made to imitate the natural habitat for the very various animals that we're seeing. They would not put certain animals in a cold environment, for instance. It would kill them. And vice versa. There are some animals that have to, have to be cool in order to survive. They have to have certain things around them that imitate what they would enjoy in their own habitat out in, out in nature. This world, however, is not our home. It's not our natural habitat. It's not where we should try to feel the most comfortable. Then why do we go to such great lengths to make it a place where we don't stick out too much. Now, this might be an admirable thing to do if you've ever lived in a foreign country. As much as possible, you want to assimilate. When Lori and I lived in Canada for about 12 years, we became aware of these things. And we tried to adopt them. Bathrooms became washrooms. That's how we referred to them. Third grade became grade three. The letter Z became Z. I don't know where that comes from. I'll have to look it up. We had to learn a new way of counting. It was not uncommon to drive between 100 and 110 on the highway. Uh, for years, my driver's license had my weight as about 475 pounds because I forgot when they asked how much I weighed, I forgot to put it into kilograms. And so they just put what I gave them into kilograms and I'm glad I didn't get stopped by the police who, who were commenting on my weight loss program. And 25 degrees would have produced a heat advisory because we were no longer in Fahrenheit. We were in Celsius. I did learn how to say A with the best of them. But even then, people would hear me talk. They would say, you're not from around here, are you? You've got an accent. And I thought, I've got an accent. You've got an accent. 
but fitting into this world when our citizenship is in heaven should never be a goal for the believer. It's not fitting for somebody who claims the name of Christ to try to adopt the lifestyle of a system that's actively opposing Jesus. Listen to the strong way, the pointed way Jesus states this. No one, having put his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. So we are not to love the world because of what the world is. Secondly, we're not to love the world because of what the world produces in us. Loving the world makes us worldly. Now, Christians have been led to think, perhaps erroneously, that worldliness is just about actions. Now, are are outward actions important? The Bible tells us they are. But often we try to combat worldliness by placing an undue emphasis on the outward appearance. This incorrect thinking was addressed by Jesus when he rebuked the Pharisees in Matthew 23. He said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you cleanse the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of extortion and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee. First cleanse the inside of the cup and dish, that the outside of them may be clean also. Now perhaps when Jesus addresses the Pharisees and the scribes, in your mind and in your heart you're thinking like you would if, if you're at a boxing match and, and Jesus is really taking it to the other guy. And we often, we often say, yeah, yeah, stick it to him, Jesus. Punch him where it hurts. Let's just, come on, you're winning. And we don't realize that we're guilty of many of the same things that Jesus rebukes the Pharisees for. Worldliness is more than an action. It's an attitude which many believers struggle with. Our love for God is in question to the extent we love the world system and what it represents. And our commitment to follow God's will can be called into question to the extent we love the world system and what it represents. Verse 17 says, the world is passing away and the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. When you and I lose our enjoyment of God's love, when we lose our desire to obey the Father's will, when that becomes a chore to us, when it becomes a hardship, when it becomes something that is more like a duty rather than out of a heart of surrender to our Father, That's what loving the world is. Back to Warren Wiersbe where he defines worldliness as this. Anything in a Christian's life that causes him to lose his enjoyment of the Father's love or his desire to do the Father's will. 
So anything, that's pretty broad. Anything in a Christian's life that causes him to lose his enjoyment of the Father's love or his desire to do the Father's will. These are words to live by. And these are things that you and I must constantly be, be vigilant about, that we would pray to God that he would show us what in that word anything might I be doing? Might I be desiring more than God? It's usually not the clear do's and don'ts of Scripture that most of us struggle with that lead us in a worldly direction. It's more subtle than that, which is why it's so important that we walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, that we're sober and vigilant to determine if even a good thing might be contributing to my waning love for God and my desire to do His will. When people love the world, live for the world, there are certain moral and spiritual devices that Satan uses to accomplish his will in, in us. And John mentions three in our text in verse 16. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. So what exactly is John referring to? When he says the lust of the flesh, it's simply what the flesh desires. We read often about the flesh in the writings of the Apostle Paul, and he uses it quite negatively. When you see the word flesh, he's talking about when we're living in sin. In Galatians 5, he says, the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, lewdness. And he goes on with this list of things that you and I should not be having in our lives. But John's use of the word flesh is often just contrasting between what is human and what is divine. John 1.14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So in our text in 1 John 2, John is simply referring to those natural desires that you and I have common. They're common in human beings, eating, drinking, having relations with our spouses if we're married. But our fallen nature often takes these things and twists and turns them and has us try to satisfy them in sinful ways. In ways that do not profit. Jesus said in John 6, 63, it's the spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. Yet it's our flesh that we often allow to be the driving force behind every decision that we make. Instead of realizing what John says in the next verse, that the world is passing away in the lust of it. There's no lasting eternal value in such pursuits. The lust of the flesh, which requires so much of our time and energy and resources, does not belong in the life of a believer. Next, John mentions the lust of the eyes. What is he referring to here? One commentator answered the question this way. It refers to the short-sighted desire for only what the eye sees physically. Another defined it as the tendency to be captivated by the outward show of things. 
without inquiring into their real value. Scripture often describes salvation as going from darkness to light. We sing the the words of amazing grace, I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. And Jesus said, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. When we're enamored with those things around us, those things that we see in a sense, we go from light to darkness. We revert back to how we viewed the world before we were saved. We stop viewing the world through the eyes of faith. And we begin only to look at what is temporary. So the lust of the eyes, which deceives and has the effect spiritually of, of taking us from light to darkness. Or you, you might even liken it to a mirage where, where you think you see something that really isn't there. These things don't belong in the life of a believer. And thirdly, John lists the pride of life. You may have a translation that includes the word boastful. A translation that may have the idea of arrogance there before pride of life. The word John uses for life here in our text in in only one other place in his epistle refers to physical life. And Jesus gives uh, us what he means when, when in 1 John 3 verse 17, that other use, John translates the word, this world's goods. So we could put that in here the pride of this world's goods first john 3 it refers as it does here to a person's means of subsistence or what is needed to maintain our livelihood the trouble comes with the word pride and jesus gives us an example in Luke 12, of what this looks like. This is the parable that we're familiar with of the rich fool. In verse 15 of Luke 12, Jesus begins with a warning. He says, take heed and beware of covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. Let me ask, do you believe that? Do you really believe that your life does not consist in the abundance of the things you possess? The world tells us he who dies with the most toys wins. And that's false. Jesus said, your life does not consist in the abundance of the things you possess. He goes on in verse 16. Then he spoke a parable to them saying, The ground of a certain rich man yielded plentifully. And he thought within himself saying, What shall I do? Since I have no room to store my crops. So he said, I will do this. 
I will pull down my barns and build greater, and there I will store all my crops and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul will be required of you. Then whose will those things be which you've provided? So is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Proverbs 18.11 says, The rich man's wealth is his strong city and like a high wall in his own esteem. We often smugly chuckle. Can you do that? We grin to ourselves when we observe others who we know are trying to keep up with the Joneses, so to speak. But you and I are susceptible to falling into this trap as well. This may show up in the temptation to live beyond your means. To take a trip that you really can't afford in an effort to impress those around you. This is the pride of life which which puts greater confidence in our own resources, in our own wealth, instead of trusting in God who has promised to meet our needs according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. The pride of life does not belong in the life of a believer. Now what can you and I expect to observe in our lives when the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life take up residence when they become a significant part of our life? Well, the love we have for God becomes cold and our desire to do His will, that desire wanes significantly. We begin to neglect God's Word and we stop going to Him in prayer. Church attendance will cease to hold a place of importance. You will come if there's nothing better going on. But how easy something better usually comes along. And giving financially to the Lord and His work won't be a priority after all. I don't have any money left to do that. Our testimony will not be treasured as it once was. And we will start seeking the approval of the world rather than the approval of God. And a believer who finds himself loving the world so much doesn't get to this point overnight. It's a gradual thing, isn't it? All we have to do is talk to Lot about that. Where he lifted up his eyes and he saw the the well-watered plains. And he decided to choose that. And his uncle Abraham chose to go the other direction. Well, this was the direction of Sodom and Gomorrah. And so he pitched his tent toward Sodom. And eventually he didn't live toward Sodom. He 
lived in Sodom and Gomorrah. And it wasn't long before Sodom and Gomorrah lived in him. And we read of that tragic, tragic example in Genesis chapter 19. Where God had to pull him out of there. And even his wife thought, but I love that lifestyle. And she turned back and we know what happened to her even after God's warning. So we are not to love the world because of what the world is. We're not to love the world because of what the world produces in us. And thirdly, we're not to love the world because of how the world ends. The world is in the process even now of passing away, our text tells us. What it has to offer, by definition, is only temporary. It's fleeting. I used to use the example of no one's ever seen a hearse with a U-Haul behind it. But then someone raised their hand and said, I have. So I can't uh, use that one very much anymore. But if God's Spirit impresses us with just one thought from today's message, it's that the only thing that will last for eternity are are those treasures that we lay up in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. And our text tells us that only those who do the will of God abide forever. So turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. This is the decision presented to us today. Will we live for God? Which may and probably will mean having less of this world and more in that which is to come. Or do I let my roots grow deep here with no thought to God's kingdom? Am I desiring my own will and the things that please me Or is my sole focus on doing the will of God? George was born in Winchester, Ontario on February 1st, 1909. He was the son of a Methodist minister. At a young age, he developed a love for singing. His first public singing came as a member of the church choir where his father pastored. After high school, he moved to New York to attend college, but dropped out to support his family during the Great Depression. And he got a job in Manhattan working as a clerk with a mutual life insurance company. One of that company's clients was Fred Allen, a well-known name in the entertainment industry. He 
at the time was the host of a nationwide radio talent show. And George was asked to audition for the show. And he auditioned and got the invitation to sing for an amateur talent contest that was broadcast nationwide. Well, he didn't win the contest. He came in second place to a yodeler. And he received a cash prize of $15. But the exposure that he received began to bring in other offers to sing commercially on radio and on television. And this whetted his appetite for what could eventually make George Beverly Shea a household name. Shortly thereafter, he visited his home in Canada, and as he was sitting at the piano one day, he noticed that his mom had put a poem there on the, on the music stand. The poem was written by Mrs. Ray Miller, and his mom had clipped it just for him to read. What he read brought conviction about what really should be the focus of our lives, and especially of his life. Should it be men's applause, or should he sing for God's glory? And so, to quote his obituary from 2013, which was printed in the New York Times, he declined the offer's to sing commercially, quote, ill at ease with the idea of a life in secular music, end quote. George composed the music to that poem that he read that day. And the poem begins with these words. I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold. I'd rather be his than have riches untold. I'd rather have Jesus than houses or lands. I'd rather be led by his nail-pierced hand than to be the king of a vast domain or be held in sin's dread sway. I'd rather have Jesus than anything this world affords today. What are you treasuring today more than you're treasuring Christ? This world is passing away. Its lusts are passing away. But he who does the will of God abides forever. Let's pray. Father, this certainly is a convicting message. Because until we get to heaven, we're going to have our old nature to, to deal with. And part of that nature is to be drawn to the things of this world. But I pray that you would help us to trust you for strength. To make the things of this world grow strangely dim. And so as we have been convicted, I pray that we'll do business with you today that we might live for your glory and not our own in Jesus name Amen
Thanks for listening to audio from Red Rocks Baptist Church. If you enjoyed this content, please consider sharing it with others. Our mission at Red Rocks Baptist Church is to know Christ and to make Him known. May God bless you as you follow Him.